This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. COPD Update that's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Swiss physician Theophile Bonnet had a special interest in anatomy. He examined bodies post-mortem and published detailed notes in his 1679 book, Sepulchritum, Latin for the grave. In this book, he reported a novel illness of voluminous lungs, which was the first known medical recording of the condition we now know as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. While today we often consider COPD to be a smoker's disease, smoking was not common in the 16, 17, or even 1800s. In fact, smoking did not become popular until the 1920s. Yet throughout history, there have been numerous descriptions of conditions such as voluminous lungs, turbid lungs, or emphysema. And we now attribute all of these to the unified diagnosis of COPD. COPD can have a variable presentation. And to respond to that, in March of 2023, the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD report, proposed a new definition. The new definition is a heterogeneous lung condition characterized by re chronic respiratory symptoms due to abnormalities of the airways and or alveoli that cause persistent, often progressive airflow obstruction. So what have we learned as a medical community in the past few years about COPD? What are the treatments that are now available to our patients? For today's webcast, I've invited two Ohio State University pulmonary critical care experts to share their knowledge on the topic. I'm pleased to introduce assistant professors of internal medicine, Drs. Jenny Wong and Kelsey Black. Jenny is the medical director of pulmonary function at the Wexner Medical Center and the physician lead for the Alpha-1 Antitrypsin Clinical Resource Center. 
Kelsey has clinical and research interests in COPD and pulmonary rehabilitation with a focus on mindfulness in chronic lung disease self-management. Jenny, Kelsey, welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now, Jenny, did this definition change for COPD have much of an impact on who we would consider to have COPD? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, really, this new definition just opens up um, uh, this idea that COPD is not just uh, smoker's disease, but rather it encompasses a larger population, um, which we will talk about more soon. Okay, perfect. And Kelsey, have there been many updates in the treatments for COPD in the recent years? Yeah, so as we'll talk about here coming up with the, the new gold guidelines and sort of reclassification of some different groups, there are some new recommendations um, when it comes to initiating inhaler therapy in these folks. Okay. All right. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and the instructions to receive your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Jenny? Thanks so much, Jingjing. Um, so very happy to be here, and we will jump straight into some of the updates in the care for patients with COPD. So I want to start by highlighting some key objectives, and the first is to understand new definitions and phenotypes of COPD, particularly with emerging evidence really highlighting that COPD is a heterogeneous disease. We'll also identify causes and risk factors other than tobacco smoking. And we'll understand how to evaluate for COPD and initiate clinical assessment, focusing on some of the highlights to the updates um, from our guidelines. We'll also develop an approach to evaluating severity and burden of disease. And then finally, discuss pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic management strategies, as there's been quite a bit of progress made in terms of our therapeutic landscape. So I want to highlight um, some important COPD epidemiology, really to place into context the scope and burden of disease. So COPD has a 13% global prevalence, and it's also the third leading cause of death worldwide. Over 3 million people died of COPD in 2012, which represents about 6% of global deaths. And really, it, the, the um, it, a main message here is that 90% of these deaths did occur in both low- and middle-income countries. So COPD is a very significant public health challenge, but it's both preventable and treatable. And unfortunately, COPD burden is projected to increase in the coming decades, both due to continued exposure to risk factors, which we'll talk about shortly, as well as an aging population. So as we kind of touched on earlier, this is the updated COPD, uh, COPD definition from GOLD, um, which was changed in 2023 and carried over in 2024. And some of I, I highlighted some of the key uh, points about COPD, which I think are novel or relatively novel concepts. So COPD is a heterogeneous lung condition, and it's characterized by chronic respiratory symptoms due to abnormalities of the airways, and or alveoli 
that causes per persistent, often progressive airflow obstruction. And I want to emphasize that in this definition, we really don't see anything about risk factors. So despite this traditional thought that COPD is a smoker's disease, nowhere in this definition do you see smoking highlighted. And that's because at least in part, uh, we're trying to move away from this traditional thought that COPD is a smoking, predominantly smoking disease. And along with that, I wanted to highlight some of the new terminology that's been introduced in gold based on um, some uh, recent research that's come out. So this umbrella of COPD encompasses a variety of different terms. The first one is early COPD, which refers to people who have COPD earlier in the biologic stages of disease. So this is an important group to highlight because these are people who may benefit from interventions at this earlier uh, phase of their disease trajectory. And there could be a lot done to modify uh, modifiable risk factors at this time point. And this stands in contrast to something called mild COPD, which uh, has a specific definition referring to mild obstruction on spirometry. And mild COPD is not the same as early COPD because you can have COPD diagnosed that is mild and remain that way for decades without underlying progression uh, of uh, airflow obstruction. So similar to uh, early COPD, but not quite the same. And then there's a large population who don't quite meet the definition for COPD, um, but they have respiratory symptoms or they have a CT chest showing pulmonary emphysema. But when you do spirometry and you don't see airflow obstruction, you can't quite call them COPD. So we've collectively decided to refer to this group as pre-COPD. And these are patients who are, are at higher risk for developing COPD later in life. But we don't quite know what to do with these patients. Along a similar um, vein, PRISM, which stands for Preserved Ratio Impaired Spirometry, um, has gained a lot of press in the past few years. This refers to the subset of individuals who have a normal FEV1 to FEC ratio, but their FEV1 is impaired. So something is wrong with their lung function without meeting the definitive diagnoses for COPD. And PRISM has been shown to be associated with both all-cause mortality and cardiopulmonary disease. Uh, but what happens to these people down the road, we, we don't really know. Some of them revert to normal lung function and others go on to progressing to significant lung disease. And then finally, we have young COPD, which simply refers to COPD diagnosed at a younger age, uh, typically 20 to 50 years old. And this is a population that's very interesting because it highlights potentially some genetic susceptibility, for example, an alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. But it could also bring to light this idea that maybe their lung function earlier in life was already impaired to begin with. So what do I mean by that? There's been a lot of studies recently um, and several large cohort studies emphasizing this idea that our lung function trajectories are not all the same. 
And as you can see, this is something that we look at zooming out from childhood, so early life, all the way until the end of life. And you can see highlighted in the green line that this is a normal population. So we attain peak optimal lung function in our early mid-20s. And then thereafter, we slowly and gradually lose FEV1. And that's part of normal aging. We have a subset, though, of people in the red line who attain peak lung function normally, but then their FEV1 rapidly declines. And there's a variety of reasons for that. And, you know, tobacco smoking is a big risk factor for COPD. And so these are patients who develop COPD later in life. Then there are the folks in the blue line who don't achieve optimal peak lung function, but their loss of FEV1 is relatively normal. So their lung function may not be perfect, but they don't overtly develop COPD later in life. And then the worst group of all, unfortunately, the orange line, these are folks who don't achieve optimal peak lung function in their young adulthood, and they go on to lose FEV1 rapidly. So not only are they at great risk for developing COPD, but they'll develop COPD at relatively younger ages. And so I think when we talk about COPD, we really should be thinking about how lung function trajectories can be different. And this involves thinking about your older patient much earlier in their life, so as a young adult or uh, as a child or adolescent. So COPD should really not be thought of as just a smoker's disease because 25 to 45% of COPD globally is accounted for factors by factors other than smoking. The more recent thought of COPD is that this is a disease that results from cumulative gene and environment interactions that span across our life course. And these interactions may damage the lungs or alter normal lung development and aging, ultimately resulting in this condition that we call COPD. And I wanna talk a little bit about risk factors because we all know that tobacco smoking is bad and secondhand smoke is also a risk factor for COPD, but other risk factors are also quite important. And one big one that we're all exposed to is air pollution, whether this is ambient air or indoor air. We also have biomass fuel exposure, which is particularly relevant when we are talking about developing countries. Um, animal dung, burning coal, crop residues, these are all major uh, risk factors for poor lung function and uh, increased risk of COPD. And of course, occupational exposures, so exposure to organic and inorganic dusts um, uh, can play a big role and uh, female sex um, uh, carries inherent risk for COPD, as well as aging, as we kind of discussed loss of lung function as we get older, as well as a, a history of prior asthma, particularly if the asthma was severe or not well controlled. 
And as adult pulmonologists, um, sometimes we don't always think about earlier life exposures, but there's a lot that happen as soon as we're really conceived and in utero that can begin to modify our lung function trajectories. So intrauterine growth restriction, low birth weight, uh, recurrent childhood respiratory infections, these are all major risk factors that can contribute to poor lung function and, and poor lung health, ultimately increasing the risk of COPD. And clinically, we don't talk about or think as much about the built environment, but our social economic status, where we live and the neighborhoods that we grow up in um, and spend our time in, these are also significant um, pieces to our lung function. Um, living in a food desert or having poor food access, these are all, I think, understudied risk factors uh, for COPD. And outside of environmental risk factors, we also have genetic susceptibility. And the best known uh, genetic inherited problem is a mutation in the Serpina-1 gene. This encodes the alpha-1 antitrypsin protein, which is known to protect the lungs from damage from serine proteases. And so you can see that in combination, all of these risk factors would play a pretty big role in dictating outside of smoking who would develop COPD. I want to touch on pathophysiology just briefly because there hasn't been a lot of updates. Um, we have a reasonably good understanding of um, the pathophysiology behind COPD. And we know that it's a disease characterized by chronic airway inflammation, which means narrowing of the small airways and destruction of the lung parenchyma, which also results in loss of alveolar attachments to those airways ultimately re resulting in a loss of lung elastic recoil, as we would see in emphysema. Something I don't think um, is as widely appreciated, though, is the concept that COPD is not just limited to the lungs, but is actually characterized by a fairly significant amount of systemic inflammation. And this is probably why folks with COPD also carry a lot of other comorbid conditions, including metabolic syndrome, uh, heart failure and uh, cardiovascular disease, skeletal muscle wasting, uh, and cachexia. And certainly excessive oxidative stress that can occur either through inhaled pollutants, smoking, or just excessive pro-inflammatory, um, a cascade that can also contribute to COPD. And then this imbalance between proteases and antiproteases, which causes elastin destruction, so destruction of this main component, um, connective tissue uh, component, ultimately leading to COPD and emphysema. And so the diagnosis of COPD is actually pretty straightforward. You need a patient who has the typical respiratory symptoms as well as spirometric evidence of airflow obstruction. So you really do need these two main features to confidently diagnose someone with COPD. There's been a little bit of discussion um, about how we should define obstruction. Um, and there's really two main schools of thought. The first one is using FEV1 to FEC ratio of less than 70%, which is what gold um, uses, this fixed cutoff, um, or by the American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society, um, a ratio less than the lower limit of normal would be considered obstruction. 
neither approach is really superior to the other, um, and there's various pitfalls to using either strategy. For example, with the fixed cutoff of 70%, this may underdiagnose young people because young people have really normal, you would expect normal lung function, and they have to lose a lot of that in order to achieve a ratio less than 70%. So they, you may be missing a window of um, uh, rapid lung function loss before you hit that cutoff. With the lower limit of normal, the problem is that this is dependent on a population distribution of normal lung function, and it's gonna be completely dependent on which reference equations you use. So I think at the end of the day, it's really important from a clinical standpoint to think about the numbers that we see on spirometry in the clinical context. So if someone has borderline numbers, um, a ratio of 65, 68%, but they're asymptomatic, it's probably warranted to watch them closer rather than going by strict number cutoffs. And once we make the diagnosis of COPD, we then start thinking about what our goals for clinical assessment are. And the first one is to identify the severity of airflow limitation, but also the trajectory of decline in FEV1. Understanding their symptom burden and their history of exacerbations is very important because that carries significant therapeutic implications, uh, as Kelsey will talk about next. And then finally, understanding the presence and the type of comor comorbidities really gets us into thinking in the mindset of thinking about COPD as a systemic disease. And so I hope this looks familiar to most people. Um, there's not really been a ton of change here when it comes to grading COPD. So airflow obstruction on the far left is graded uh, by gold one, two, three, or four based on the severity. The quantification of exacerbation history has remained the same, but in the far right, the A, B, C, D box that was there before is now changed. So C and D boxes are now merged together to the E group, which represents anyone who's had more than two exacerbations or a severe exacerbation requiring hospitalization. And this carries some therapeutic implications, which is why they made this change. And then finally, I wanna to touch on chest imaging um, and, and particularly emphasizing that chest imaging cannot confirm a diagnosis of COPD. What we can use CT chest for is really to diagnose pulmonary emphysema, which is a radiographic diagnosis. It's also relevant for lung cancer screening, particularly in this population. And it's helpful to exclude alternative diagnoses like interstitial lung disease or pulmonary edema, where you can have overlapping symptoms. Um, and one relatively novel concept that has cropped up over the last couple of years is this uh, term called dyssynapsis. And CT chest, um, at least in the research phase, um, has been helpful in quantifying airway abnormalities. Dyssynapsis really refers to a mismatch of our airway tree caliber and our relative uh, lung volume size. So our airways can be smaller than our actual lung volumes. And this has been cited as um, uh, being associated with worse lung function or more rapid lung function decline and a greater risk of COPD. So something coming down the pike, hopefully, which will have more clinical applicability. 
And so to summarize, I wanted to highlight some key points about this first half of the talk. And the first is, is that COPD should not simply be thought of as just a smoker's disease because it is a heterogeneous condition and it results from complex gene and environment interactions that span across our life course. Our clinical assessment should really hit on these key points, including symptom burden, their exacerbation history, and evidence and severity of airflow obstruction, because they collectively will inform our therapeutic strategy. And with that, I will hand it over to Kelsey, who will discuss the management of COPD. All right, thank you, Jenny. Um, so building on what Jenny was talking about with clinical assessment and diagnosis of COPD, I wanna discuss overall management approach for, for patients with COPD with regards to these updated guidelines. One thing I wanna emphasize first is with, the, with these new guidelines, there is an emphasis on what they are now calling treatable traits and what we're identifying as treatable traits in patients with COPD. And these treatable traits are the predominant symptoms of breathlessness and decreased exercise capacity in these folks. And we really need to consider um, these treatable traits in conjunction um, with any continued occurrences of COPD exacerbation while they're on maintenance therapy for their disease. Exacerbations of COPD are acute worsening of their respiratory symptoms often associated with increased shortness of breath, increased short-acting bronchodilator use, cough, um, changes or increase in sputum production. And these exacerbations are associated with both local and systemic inflammation. Exacerbations, we know, um, increase the rate of lung function decline in these patients and they worsen the overall prognosis of the patient. Um, and as we also know, they are a very large burden to our healthcare system. Disease progression with regards to worsening of airflow obstruction on PFTs is also associated with increased risk of exacerbation, increased risk of hospitalization, as well as increased mortality. So, Overall, the goals of treatment in COPD um, are sort of twofold. We want to reduce the symptoms and we want to reduce the risk to the patient. So to reduce the symptoms, we're really targeting the symptom of that the symptoms that they're having directly. And we're also working to improve their exercise tolerance. And because COPD is a systemic disease, we really want to try to improve the overall health status of the patient as well. With regards to reducing risk, um, this is where we really wanna do what we can to uh, prevent disease progression. We wanna prevent and treat exacerbations as much as we can, um, and therefore leading to reduced mortality. So I'll be kind of going through um, both the pharmacologic management as well as the non-pharmacologic management. Um, and I'll really be focusing on changes um, that have come up with the new gold guidelines. Within the pharmacologic man management, there's some new recommendations regarding choice of an initial inhaler therapy. Um, we also have um, guidance regarding the use of a new clinical biomarker, which is the blood eosinophil level in these patients. And we're also sort of reconsidering how we use inhaled corticosteroids. 
With regards to the non-pharmacologic management, as Jenny mentioned in her talk, you know, really focusing on minimizing environmental triggers. Um, we'll discuss briefly smoking cessation, oxygen therapy, um, updates and recommendations for vaccinations. And I'll spend some time discussing the importance of physical activity in these folks, as well as some of the options for advanced therapies in COPD, which is often directed at emphysema treatment. So inhaler therapy, this is awesome. often the first thing we think about when we think about managing our, our COPD patients. Um, and what I want to emphasize here is, you know, we're gonna go over how to initiate um, inhaler therapy for, for COPD patients, but really these patients require regular reassessment. And we wanna reassess these patients more often when they have severe disease, and this can be done less often um, when they have uh, more mild disease. But each time we reassess them, we wanna evaluate their symptom burden. We wanna evaluate their risk of exacerbation um, and, and the frequency of exacerbations. And I just wanted to spend a little time and point out here that it's also important at each of these assessments when we're using inhaler therapy, that each time we um, are evaluating um, their inhaler adherence as well as their inhaler technique. Um, there was a, a, a review in CHESS back in 2016 where they really looked at over a period of 40 years how off what the prevalence of poor inhaler technique was in patients. And they found poor technique in about 30% of patients using inhaler therapy. And unfortunately, over the 40 years that they looked at, we really didn't make too much improvement over time. So this is really important to address. Um, we also want to address the cost of inhaler therapy because this can often be a barrier to our patients using inhalers. Um, this is especially important at the beginning of each sort of calendar year when insurance companies can potentially change their formularies. Um, and it's also important, important for our, our, our Medicare folks who may fall into the donut hole towards the end of the year. So this is something I always kind of ask about. So before I kind of get into um, some of the, the new recommendations, I just wanted to go over briefly some important abbreviations that I'll be using throughout the talk. When I use the word LABA, um, I'm referring to long-acting beta-2 adrenergic receptor agonists. Um, when I refer to LAMAs, it will be long-acting anti-muscarinic agonist. And if I refer to an ICS, it will be an inhaled corticosteroid. So this, um, you may also recognize, um, this is basically the guidance for initiating pharmacologic treatment um, with inhaler therapy in patients with COPD. And so initial pharmacotherapy should be based on the patient's gold group, um, which do um, Dr. Wang helped us classify earlier in this talk. And so I want to point out that this is, these are grouped based on, like she was saying, um, how symptomatic they are as well as how often they are exacerbating. So the treatment recommendations for group A, so people who are less symptomatic and they are not frequent exacerbators, these recommendations really have not changed. We're still recommending a bronchodilator in these folks. Um, and this can be either a short-acting bronchodilator or a long-acting bronchodilator. Sometimes a long-acting bronchodilator can be preferred if it's affordable and the patient is having benefit. 
Um, but regardless um, of the type of bronchodilator, if the patient is having perceived benefit from it, it should be continued. I also do wanna say that Regardless of the group um, that the patient falls into, we are still recommending that all patients have a rescue short-acting bronchodilator available to them for immediate symptom relief. So getting into the updates for the group B, for folks that fall into group B, so these are folks who are more symptomatic, but they are less frequent exacerbators. Um, this is a change with the new updated guidelines. And so um, this is basic, based on multiple studies. And multiple studies are now showing that dual therapy with a combination LABA plus LAMA is now recommended over, over monotherapy, where previously um, just monotherapy with a LAMA was recommended. Um, and these studies have shown with the dual therapy, LABA and LAMA, um, that there's um, improvement in FEV1, there's reduction in dyspnea, and overall improved quality, quality of life with a similar side effect profile. I briefly just wanted to mention some of the combination inhalers that fall into this class. Um, the, um, these are the ones that are, are combined into one inhaler. If these are cost effective to the patient, um, you know, this is usually what I reach for first. But if needed, these two medications can be delivered in separate inhalers as well. Um, the first one being the um, umaclidium valanterol, which is the anoroelipta. Um, there's glycopyrrolate from metarol, which is the brevespi. And there's teotropium and olodaterol, which is the steolto. Um, so again, if I can get it into one inhaler, I usually try that. But again, that's based on um, patient's comfort with the inhaler technique as well as the cost of the inhaler. So updates for group E. Um, so these are patients who are um, can be both less symptomatic or more symptomatic, but these are the groups that are frequent exacerbators. So they're having more than two moderate exacerbations um, in the last year, or they're ending up in the hospital with their exacerbations. And this is where one of the bigger changes has occurred, and we're now able to use a, a clinical biomarker to help guide our therapy. So it's now recommended for group E that we also initiate with a dual um, LABA plus LAMA, which is now recommended. But now we can also add an inhaled corticosteroid in patients who have blood eosinophil levels greater than 300. If their blood eosinophil level is greater than 300, we are now recommending triple therapy with an inhaled corticosteroid, a LABA plus a LAMA. And this has been shown um, to, to reduce risk of exacerbation in this group. Um, it's important to note that a combination of ICS plus LABA is actually no longer recommended. Um, I will get into a little bit further in the talk um, and kind of piece out a little bit more when an inhaled corticosteroid is recommended on top of the LABA plus LAMA. Um, but again, this is where we have a, a new clinical biomarker to help guide our therapy. I did wanna mention we also do have a couple um, triple inhalers on the market, the Trelegy and the, and the Brestry, where all three medications are delivered in one inhaler. Um, but again, separate inhalers can be used based on cost and, and, and patient comfort with the technique.
So with regards to this new um, clinical biomarker, the blood eosinophil level, um, a number of studies that have shown that eosinophil levels can predict how effective an inhaled corticosteroid can be in preventing future exacerbation. So this is again a new addition to the gold guidelines. And so the proposed pathophysiology of this is that higher blood eosinophil counts may be associated or correlated with higher levels of um, eosinophil levels in the lungs, as well as higher amounts of type 2 inflammation in the airways. And more type 2 inflammation may explain this increased inhaled corticosteroid effect in patients with these higher blood eosinophil levels. Um, and this is why we're kind of starting to use this as a biomarker in these folks. So um, now with the new diagnosis of COPD, it is, it is helpful um, to, to get a, a CBC level with DIF. And so there's two uh, randomized control trials, the IMPACT and the TRIBUTE um, trial, and they compared triple inhaler therapy versus the LABA plus LAMA. And this confirmed greater inhaled corticosteroid effect in patients who had blood eosinophil levels greater than 150. And then the FLAME study showed that ICS withdrawal in patients with eosinophils greater than 300 resulted in increased risk of exacerbation. So this is kind of where that 300 number is coming from. So when do we consider um, an inhaled corticosteroid? Um, and so um, this is where we can use kind of this biomarker, we can use the patient's history, and we can use our own sort of clinical assessment. So things that favor the use of inhaled corticosteroid, again, in addition to LAMA plus LABA um, in patients who are frequent exacerbators, is if they're having frequent hospitalizations, if they've had more than two moderate exacerbations in the last year, if their blood eosinophil level is greater than 300, or if they have concurrent asthma symptoms on top of their COPD. Um, of note, with these recent guidelines, we're actually no longer referring to asthma COPD overlap. They're considering them two separate diseases. Um, so if the patient has asthma in addition to COPD, um, inhaled corticosteroid is a cornerstone um, of therapy. We can also consider use of inhaled corticosteroid in patients who have had one moderate exacerbation in the last year. And also if their blood eosinophil level kind of falls into that middle range of 100 to 300, that's a time where we can start to think about use. We wanna consider avoiding inhaled corticosteroids or even at times de-escalating from inhaled corticosteroid use if the patient has had repeated episodes of pneumonia, if they have a history of mycobacterial infection, or if their blood eosinophil level is less than 100. So I wanted to mention briefly um, dupilumab um, because this is something, um, it was a new study that was just put out in the last year and you may start seeing COPD patients on this medication. So dupilumab is an anti-IL-4 receptor um, alpha monoclonal al antibody. Um, and there was a recent study that demonstrated that dupilumab may be effective in reducing exacerbation risk in patients who also have an eosinophil level greater than 300. 
It's important to note that these patients in this trial were already on triple inhaler therapy, so this, this demonstrated further reduction in risk. Um, and it showed a significant reduction in the annual rate of moderate to severe exacerbations in patients in the treatment group. It also showed um, improvement in FEV1 quality of life, and there was a similar side effect protocol but, or, uh, profile between the, the treatment and non-treatment group. There was a recent additional study sort of that is pending publication that also confirmed these results. So we are in pulmonology, we're starting to see, to, to put this into practice. So you may start to see patients on this medication um, with the severe COPD. Um, but obviously, you know, this is newer, more trials are needed um, and this will continue to get some attention. So getting into some key non-pharmacologic considerations, I wanted to briefly touch on a few things um, with regards to smoking cessation, oxygen therapy, and vaccinations. There haven't been too many changes um, with the recent update, but these are still very important to talk about in our patients with COPD. The first often being smoking cessation, which is really a cornerstone of COPD management to help uh, reduce the risk um, of disease progression. Um, so it's often the most commonly encountered and easily identifiable risk factor for COPD, um, and it has a really big capacity to, to influence the natural history of the disease. Um, with stopping smoking often um, reducing the daily symptom burden as well as reducing the risk of exacerbation. And smoking cessation may also um, result in the rate of, uh, reduce the rate of lung function decline in patients who stop smoking. As we all probably know, tobacco cessation requires repeated counseling, um, repeated treatment until the patient makes progress. Relapse is very common um, and just really reflects, reflects the chronic nature of nicotine addiction and dependence. Getting into oxygen therapy, it's important to note that all patients, regardless of stage of disease, should be evaluated. I think we've all seen those patients who have less severe on disease on PFTs, but they, they do desaturate and need oxygen. And then you have folks who have very dis severe disease, but do not require oxygen. So really these patients, we should be assessing them for need for oxygen across the board. And this comes um, because for, for patients who have resting hypoxemia um, with an SAO2 less than 88% um, or a PAO2 less than or equal to 55%, continuous oxygen therapy does reduce mortality in these patients specifically. With regards to vaccinations, um, some of the updates that we I wanted to address is, you know, with the new guidelines and with the new availability of vaccines for COVID and RSV, that we do recommend that our patients with COPD receive these, these vaccinations. We're also still recommending the yearly fluid vaccination as it can reduce serious illness and death in patients with COPD. And another important consideration is to make sure that their Tdap um, vaccine is up to date to give them protection against pertussis. Beyond that, we're really just recommending all the other age-appropriate vaccinations for, for patients um, with COPD. So I, as Jenny mentioned earlier in the talk, um, we really are thinking of COPD as a systemic disease. 
Um, and there is a lot of comorbidities um, often associated with it. And it's important that we identify them and address them. Um, again, this is directed at kind of over, overall trying to improve the health status overall of our patients. And so common comorbidities are cardiovascular disease, lung cancer, often these folks were screening for lung cancer, sleep apnea or OSA, osteoporosis, secondary polycythemia, and GERD or acid reflux. I did want to bring attention to um, comorbid symptoms of anxiety and depression in patients with COPD because there is a very high prevalence of this in these folks and it's very much often under-recognized and under-treated. Um, and so it's been shown that actually having concurrent symptoms of anxiety and or depression can worsen outcomes in COPD. So. Um, about one in four patients with COPD experience clinically um, significant depressive symptoms compared with one in eight patients without COPD. And anxiety has a prevalence of around 40% in these folks. And it's been shown that concurrent symptoms of both depression and anxiety can result in increased exacerbations, increased hospitalizations, prolonged hospitalizations when they are hospitalized, um, and sometimes um, can also affect mortality. So it's really important that we identify these symptoms in these patients. Um, in addition to, to recognizing and, and, you know, pharmacotherapy for this when appropriate, cognitive behavioral therapy and mind-body interventions can reduce these symptoms. Um, and I'll talk about it here soon, but pulmonary rehabilitation can also have positive effects on these symptoms as well. So physical activity in patients with COPD is extremely important and something that I talk about consistently with all my patients with, with, um, with COPD. It's important to know that it's really only in advanced lung disease that ventilatory or gas exchange limitations limit exercise capacity. More often in the majority of patients, their exercise capacity is more limited by their peripheral muscle and cardiovascular deconditioning than it is their decline in lung function. And I often describe it to patients this way to kind of sort of build confidence and explain why we talk about exercise in, in patients who have trouble breathing. And so when, when we're deconditioned, we have an earlier onset of anaerobic metabolism and production of lactic acid buildup in the muscles when we're exerting ourselves. And so as we exercise and we build up our fitness level, um, it increases the content of these oxidative enzymes in the muscles, which causes a delay in the buildup of lactic acid and eventually leads to improved exercise performance and reduced shortness of breath. So there's always a challenge to both promoting and maintaining physical activity, probably for all of us, not just our patients with chronic lung disease, but it really should be encouraged in, in all patients with COPD. We do have um, a sort of mechanism to help patients. I sort of describe it as a jumpstart back into exercise with a program called pulmonary rehabilitation. It's a structured exercise program um, combined with um, education, uh, education sessions that's really designed to both improve their physical fitness level as well as build their confidence um, in managing their disease. 
Multiple studies have shown that pulmonary rehabilitation improves dyspnea, um, improves exercise capacity. Importantly, it improves quality of life um, in these patients. And it's also been shown to improve recovery after an acute COPD exacerbation. Um, it's also been shown if patient was recently hospitalized with a COPD exacerbation, it can help prevent re-hospitalization and re-exacerbation. So all patients who have a high symptom burden and an increased risk of exacerbation should be recommended to participate in pulmonary rehabilitation. So these are our gold group B and group E patients. Um, so this is something that's really important to emphasize. But again, the goal with this um, pulmonary rehab isn't meant to be a one and done. It's really meant to provoke behavior change and help patients incorporate exercise um, in maintaining their fitness level into their day-to-day -day life. So we really want to promote it as a habit because the benefits of improved exercise and fitness level only last as long as we continue exercising. Finally, I just wanted to touch briefly um, on some of the advanced therapies that we have in COPD. Um, most of these are directed at emphysema treatment, but I just wanted to mention them briefly. The first being a lung volume reduction surgery, um, and these are for patients with upper lobe predominant emphysema and a low exercise capacity. This is a non-anatomic resection of emphysema located at the tops of the lungs with the idea of sort of removing the most diseased tissue and directing airflow to the healthier parts of the lungs. It's a similar idea with bronchoscopic lung volume reduction. These are performed by our interventional pulmonologists and they place one-way valves um, in specific um, and individualized locations in the lungs. Again, to really try to direct air away from the most diseased portions into the healthier parts of the lungs. It's also important to note that lung transplant is an option in very um, specific patients with COPD, and for this they would require evaluation at a lung transplant center. Finally, um, I wanted to um, address the importance of palliative care. Not all folks are, are candidates for advanced therapies in COPD, um, and as their disease progresses, progresses, symptom management can be very important and effective in these folks. We use low-dose opioids, we use oxygen, um, fans blowing air on the face to help reduce symptoms of dyspnea. Um, we wanna think about nutritional supplementation in folks who are underweight, um, as this can improve um, respiratory muscle strength as well as their overall health status. And it's really important that we address end-of-life care um, with these patients, especially with regards to their wishes surrounding resuscitation, um, surrounding intubation, and any advanced care directives um, that they, they, they wish to make known. So with that, um, thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. Um, thank I you really both. appreciate it. Yeah, that was um, fantastic. It, Seems like there has been quite a lot that has changed with COPD care just within the past few years. So that is um, a really helpful overview. So definitely got some things to take home for my patients. Now, um, Kelsey, I know you mentioned, you know, some therapies are for moderate uh, COPD exacerbations. How do you classify the severity of an exacerbation? Yeah, so currently we're sort of classifying them um, retrospectively. Um, so we call a mild exacerbation if the patient is able to manage with just kind of increased use of their short-acting bronchodilators. They may have a few days where they have to take it more frequently. 
We're calling a moderate exacerbation in when we're able to treat as an outpatient with the, the usual prednisone and, and azithromycin, and mm -hmm. they have improvement with that, and we're calling it severe when they require hospitalization. Mm -hmm. The most recent gold guidelines are giving more specific clinical criteria to help categorize that kind of in the moment um, in folks who are exacerbating, um, but that goes into a lot of detail and could be, could be a talk in and of itself. Okay, sure. <laughs> now it sounds like the treatment of exacerbation is still pretty much the same steroids mm -hmm. and um, antibiotics with azithromycin should they reach the level of needing more than just the bronchodilator, is that right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, Jenny, in the past, COPD, um, you know, and as you mentioned in your talk, it's been considered a man's disease. But like you said, women are um, more likely to get COPD. And I've been reading that more women have been dying from COPD than men. Why is that? Yeah, I, I think, Jinjing, that's a really, really great question and one with which we really still need quite a bit of research to truly answer. Um, but yeah, women are at higher risk for not only COPD, but greater burden of disease. So more symptoms and a higher exacerbation rate. And I, I think there's a couple reasons that have been explored. Um, one of them is simply relating to differences in hormonal influences. Um, so for example, there's been some thought that estrogen may potentiate the effects of cigarette smoke to cause more damage in the airways um, as one potential driving uh, factor. Mm -hmm. And then differences in exposure are probably, um, is probably a, a, a particularly relevant point. Um, so for example, biomass fuels uh, exposure globally is actually the number one uh, risk factor for COPD when it comes to environmental exposures, mm -hmm. even more so than cigarette smoke. Mm -hmm. And women traditionally are the ones who are exposed to um, biomass fuels. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think the answer is quite complicated and hinges upon some genetics susceptibility, hormonal influences, and also environmental risk factors. Okay. Now, vaping has become, uh, or just entered the market really in the last 20 years in the United States. Do we know yet if vaping causes COPD or, you know, now I, I think some people are using vaping as an alternative to cigarettes as a risk reduction strategy. Is it less likely to cause COPD compared to cigarettes? Yeah, that's a, that's a very loaded question and um, something that I think over the next decade we'll get a lot more evidence for. Um, there is some suggestion that the use of electronic cigarettes is associated with worse lung function um, as well as uh, lung diseases, including asthma and COPD. But how that risk compares to the risk of tobacco smoking is still where I think the uncertainty is, with mm -hmm. some studies actually showing that there is a harm reduction effect, meaning that vaping is relatively safer than smoking uh, traditional cigarettes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will take that one step further and say that in the UK, they've initiated this swap to stop program where they're actually, there's government uh, uh, initiated programs that are handing out electronic cigarettes to people who smoke as a, as a form of harm reduction. I will say that we do not recommend that here in the United States. We say don't smoke and don't start vaping to help you smoke. So a lot of controversy, but a very mm -hmm. interesting topic. Okay. Well, Kelsey, you mentioned inhaler, you know, technique is very critical. Um, and there seem to be so many new inhaler types on the market, even just since when I started training, like the breath actuated and all of them seem to have their own branded 
types of inhalers. Yeah. What's a good um, resource for patients to learn how to use these inhalers properly? Yeah, so I think it's really important, kind of like I mentioned, to reassess their inhaler technique at kind of multiple points of contact. Um, so kind of techniques we use as, you know, um, uh, support in the office where we try to review their inhaler technique at each visit. Um, I always tell my patients when they go to pick up their, their medications at the pharmacy, when they ask, do you have any questions about your medicine, mm -hmm. say yes and ask them <laughs> to take the inhaler out of the box and show you how to use it. Mm -hmm. Um, there are YouTube, avail YouTube videos available, so I've used that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really have one go-to resource. It's just something I try to address at each kind of point of contact because there's sort of multiple steps in the process of taking an inhaler mm -hmm. where, where we can kind of fall short. And unfortunately, we don't have just one foolproof inhaler that mm -hmm. works for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> they should bring their inhaler to the office visit so yeah. you can show them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. Jenny, um, you know, uh, we spend a lot of time indoors. So what are the indoor air pollutants that we should try to avoid? Should we be getting rid of our candles and diffusers? Yeah, that's that's a really great question and um, something that patients definitely ask me about too. Um, so we, we have indoor air quality is gonna be based on a variety of different sources within the home. Um, Big ones include uh, a gas stove or a gas range um, or having the oven on um, continuously, especially for heat. Um, but things like candles and diffusers also contribute to um, increasing concentrations of particulate matter. And so, um, you know, minimizing risk, we could potentially think about opening the windows on mm -hmm. a day where there's good air quality outside or not using or minimizing the use of candles and diffusers um, and, uh, uh, switching the oven off and keeping mm -hmm. the ventilation on. Mm -hmm. So there's some, or using air cleaners. Uh, there's a lot of different things that we can do to mitigate these risks. Mm -hmm. Oh, darn. Now I can't have, you know, the fresh smelling home from the candles. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for, for this wonderful talk. Um, I think this will be fantastic for our physicians to know all the updates and we can take the best care of our patients using the most up-to-date evidence. All right, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Jenny? Yes, so um, in from my part of the talk, um, COPD really should be thought of as a complex heterogeneous disease, not only of smokers, um, and we really want to be considering gene and environment interactions that occur across the life course as contributing factors to the development of this complex disease. And Kelsey? Thank you. I think my key takeaway would be the fact that with COPD treatment, we have the use of a new clinical biomarker with regards to the blood eosinophil level, and we're now using that to really guide um, which patients are appropriate for inhaled corticosteroid on top of their long-acting beta agonist and long-acting anti-muscarinic inhaler. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive your CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week. My guest will be Dr. Pete Stanich, who will be discussing colon cancer screening and polyp surveillance. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.